the poison that led to the demise of the Roman Empire. And this is from Edward Gibbon. It was scarcely possible that the eyes of contemporaries should discover in the public felicity the latent causes of the decay and the corruption. This long peace and uniform government of the Romans introduced a slow, secret poison into the vitals of the empire. The minds of men were gradually reduced to the same level. The fire of genius was extinguished, and even the military spirit evaporated. And this is from Edward Gibbon on his book, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. And what is he saying? They had it so good for so long that the people began to become lethargic. Right? And before you know it, their minds were poisoned just from the lethargy of thinking nobody's going to overthrow us. Right? And if you look at it, his book, you look at the degradation in the, in the Roman Empire. These people who believe that morals don't matter, just look at history. Just look at history. Okay, you don't want to look at the Bible? Look at history. History tells you that it matters. And you look at the Roman Empire. There was a, um, somebody had told me about a book, The Last Man in Rome. It just became a country, an empire that was full of degradation. Immorality will bring down a country. And I don't care what anybody says, just look at history. You don't want to look at the Bible? Look at history. <clears throat> and so here you have today, we were talking about, and we we're on our 19th message, and we've been talking about glory to glory and, um, and how important it is to bring glory to God. And so we understand and have been talking about here recently how the believer is able to bring glory to God and that the church is a source of God's glory today. And so we looked in the Old Testament and we saw that there were outward manifestations of the glory. One of the best ways to see it was the, uh, the second person of the Godhead who was a fire in the uh, wilderness uh, that led the, the tent. Um, he appeared to Moses in a burning bush uh, as a burning light. I mean, I wish that in the future, I, and we're going to look at this, <clears throat> We're going to actually manifest a glory, an outward glory. Isn't that going to be neat, Debbie? On the outside, you're going to radiate a glory. I believe that's the glory that Adam and Eve had. And I think we could prove that, that they had a glory on the outside that they manifested before the fall. And when they fell, it said that they, that glory was stripped from them. They lost it. And so what are we made in the image of today? We're made in the image of fallen Adam. Mm -hmm. And, okay, I, you know, again, I told you that the people say things that are not true. And you tell a lot of people, no, you're not made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of fallen Adam. And that's just hard for people to stomach. Well, okay, let's do this. You look at these unsaved people out here, some of the murderers and rapers, rapists and all of these people. You're going to tell me that that's, they're reflecting God's image? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is insane for you to even say that. And yet people continue to perpetuate this nonsense. And so you just see right over in Genesis chapter 5 where it says that Adam had a son in his own likeness and in his own image. And we come right over to 1 Corinthians 15, 
and we see that man is in the image of fallen Adam. This is so easy to see. And so when, what is what mankind reflecting today? They're not reflecting the image of God. They're reflecting the image of fallen Adam. And as we, because we as believers, and just to do a little review, remember as when you were saved, the Son uh, indwelt you. Not only does the Son indwell you, but the Holy Spirit indwells you, and the Father indwells you. But for the sake of glory, it's the Son. The Son has life in himself, which is eternal life. So I'm not waiting to get eternal life in the future. I have eternal life now. Why? 1 John 5, 11 tells me that when I was indwelt by the Son, at the time that I believed the facts of the gospel, Christ died on the cross for my sins, he was buried and was raised, the Son indwelt me. So now I have eternal life. Every single believer has eternal life. The problem is, is that not every single believer is allowing that life to be seen out in them. But every believer has it. And so instead of today manifesting a light, this light that I'm manifesting is life. The life of the sun can be seen out in this human body as I allow the Holy Spirit to produce it in me. As we're going to see this today, it's the, the name of Christ be glorified. The character of Christ can be glorified in you and I as we allow the Holy Spirit to produce it. And so I see it as a continuing process here that we're being transformed, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, from glory to glory to glory. And it's going to result in when you and I are changed at the rapture, we're going to get our glorified bodies. And I think that, that, that those bodies are going to manifest a light like it was in the past. And the challenge today is that will we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out? Every believer has the capacity. Not one single believer is lacking in this capacity to allow the Son's life to be seen out. Not one believer. The question is, to what degree will I allow the Holy Spirit to produce that life in me? And so, that's what's on stage today. <clears throat> and so, in, uh, in the book of Thess- uh, the Thessalonians, I'll get it out. <laughs> Uh, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he's writing the second epistle to them. Now, in the first epistle, he talks to them about all of the things that uh, they wrote to him, asking some questions about what happens to people before they die, or, or, or the people that die before the rapture or their coming. And he had to set that straight about the rapture versus the second coming. And you know he was run out of there. If you go over to the, uh, Acts, the 17th chapter, he was run out ahead of time. And... Uh, they ran him out of there, and so they, the Thessalonians underwent a lot of persecution. And, um, you know, it's a funny thing. When you're spiritual, you can handle persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is not persecution. And uh, you, you look back, and you look at the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you ask yourself, how could these believers endure such uh, persecution? And the reason that they were able to endure it is because as you're spiritual, you can when I'm carnal, uh, not so much. 
I was just talking to Joyce this week, and I was looking at some things with regard to Satan. A lot of the things with Satan is, is not so much, well, it is what he does, but if you look back in the book of Job, one of the things that happens is the potential effects of what Satan will do to you. Uh, one of the things with Job, and he, you could see that it says that Job um, was bitter, that these things, these attacks from Satan, t- attacks from Satan caused them to be bitter. And as you chase that word for bitterness and, and the emotion that is involved in it, really it's related to the soul. And what Satan wants to do is just to bump you off course to where you are so focused on other things that you're not going to be focused on bringing glory to God. These things can actually get you so discombobulated that your focus is not on the fact that God is trying to use you in the midst of the situation to bring glory to him. You could become so focused on the circumstance that you lose sight of it. <clears throat> and so Paul was writing to them and um, I just love what he said here at the beginning. You know I do because it's the scripture I continue to quote. Now, I do have other scriptures. This is not, (laughs) but this is a beautiful one. I think it is. And he tries to encourage them in their suffering uh, to be able to maintain and to know that God is using them in the midst of the suffering. And so notice he says here, going back in verse 3 of the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, <clears throat> as it is meet, because your faith groweth exceedingly. You know, it's an interesting thing that I think that what happens with believers is that we actually grow more when there's pressure. And I know you don't want to say that, but it is true. When you have the opportunity to actually extend that faith a little longer, um, it's the circumstances that really caused that. And I think that you can see this with the Thessalonians. Your faith grew it exceedingly. And notice, and the charity of each one of you all toward each other abounds. And so the love toward the saints was just off the charts. And this is in the midst of pressures that they were under. The love toward you, uh, each other abounds so that we ourselves glory in you and the churches of God for all your patience, notice uh, patience, uh, whenever you see patience, it comes from the fact that there is some kind of pressure that is involved. There's some pressure coming from somewhere because the only way that we can actually exhibit patience is that there is pressure. And these pressures teach us how to have patience. Patience is something that God has not provided as a part of the fruit from the spirit. You learn it. Patience is something you learn from facing pressure. And so he says, and when you see it, you know that they are under some kind of pressure here. For your patience and your faith, notice, in all your persecutions and your tribulations that you endure. So you have persecutions, which is, persecutions is someone is pursuing you. And they are just They're doggedly pursuing you, and they just are going to try to make your life miserable. And you can see it with the Apostle Paul as he he pursued the the Christians. And your tribulations, your tribulations is the word, uh, thalipsis, and its pressures. 
and afflictions are, you can translate it afflictions, it's pressure and it's coming from every side. Have you ever had it to where you looked up and you just thought, man, everywhere I look, there is pressure coming from everywhere. And so that's the word uh, for afflictions. It's translated here, tribulations. Which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you also suffer. And seeing it is a righteous thing to God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. Now, I, I think that Paul is holding out the second coming as a, uh, um, as a um, comfort to those who were suffering. And, and, and the church at Thessalonica. And why? Well, he continues to tell believers throughout his epistles, don't avenge yourself. God's going to avenge this, right? Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil by the good. And so what is it? There's a prospect in the future. God's going to deal with these kind of people. Right? He's going to deal with them. And I think that that's held out here to the Thessalonians as a comfort, an encouragement to them. Don't worry about it. What is the real problem that people have is when you see people getting away with things and it looks like no one's going to do anything about it, right? That, that, you know, you see it on your workplace, right? Wherever you see it, it gets your goat, right? <laughs> you hate to see someone getting away with evil, right? And so Paul is telling the Thessalonians here, verse 7, to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, this is going not at the rapture, which is interesting. He's talking about the end of the tribulation period. When he comes back and we're coming back with him. And I don't think we're going to have our sin nature. So I won't be able to say to people, I told you. <laughs> we're going to miss that. Right. We, we won't have the same mindset. But we're going to come back with him like we come back with our big brother. At the end of the tribulation period. And it's going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be an absolute bloodbath. And so notice he says. When he comes. and uh, rest, You are troubled. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed. And that word revealed. Um, is the unveiling. That's the word for revelation. It's the unveiling. This is not the end of the story. These people that think that they saw the Lord Jesus, oh, he was killed and all of this stuff, ain't the end of the story. There's more to the story. And when he comes back at the end of the tribulation period, you're going to see him in all of his glory. And you're going to see the unveiling. And notice from heaven, and he's coming back with his mighty angels. Notice in verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And so, I mean, it's in a way, it's a sad thing because you have all of these people who think that they know and they just are obstinate. A lot of them are just fighters against God. I mean, I think of some of these people, this uh, uh, Noah Havari that works with the World Economic Forum. What an arrogant guy. He's a very arrogant, arrogant man. He, he has the nerve to say 
there is no God and that you and your will, your free will is over. This little old man, I would like to see him when the Lord comes back. What is he going to say? He may need a change of clothing, I think, is what's going to happen. And so he comes back and he's, he's taking vengeance on them that know not God and that, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, this is an interesting thing that there is a place where God is not manifesting his glory. They want life without God Mm -hmm. and apart from him. He's going to give them exactly what they want. Notice in verse 10, when he shall come to be glorified in all of his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now the admonition that Paul gives to the Thessalonians, wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his, I would say from his goodness and the work of faith with power. And here's the point, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll see this, the name, bringing glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's going on today with believers. You know, all of the other stuff that is happening, it's just smoke. And it's not really to surpass what our really main, our main objective is, is to bring glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see that um, today. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things and grateful that as believers that we can actually express an opinion about who you are and your character as we're able to allow the Holy Spirit to produce the life of your son through us. And we're thankful that that can happen. And it's totally a result of grace, not a result of uh, anything that we've done. And we're so thankful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And so Paul desired that God would count them worthy of this calling. And so the word, uh, he, uh, Paul worshiped for the Thessalonians uh, on behalf of the Thessalonians. You see it there in verse 11. He says, wherefore, we all also we pray always for you. That word for prayer actually is the word for worship. And so in worship, as you're worshiping God, I believe that holistically I'm worshiping God and then other opportunities to communicate to God come up. Have you ever just been praying and then all of a sudden somebody came to your mind? Oh, Father, remember Debbie. Something's going on with her. Oh, Rick. Right. And other names come up. And so you can supplicate. Oh, Father, and I also, can you help me with this situation that's going on? So I think worship is a real, is is the overall means of communicating, and I can be thankful in those things. And and so you have all these different forms of communication. And so notice he says here that um, he was worshiping on behalf of them that God would count you worthy of his calling. Uh, Really, worthy. it's actually that which meets an estimate. It reaches up to an estimate. So here's God's 
estimate of what he says Kevin can do. Is Kevin going to rise to that occasion? Is he going to allow the Holy Spirit to get me there? I mean, you see this in sports a lot. I mean, some of the um, we used to have on our wall in our uh, football um, facility uh, this statement. Potential is just another word for wasted talent. <laughs> and, you know, you have a lot of people who say, oh, they got potential. Man, if they just stop being lazy, they're going to be a great player. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> they have potential, but they never developed. The believer, you and I, have the potential to meet God's ex- uh, estimate of who he says we are. The question is, uh, will we allow the Holy Spirit to do it? It's not even us doing it. It's just allowing the Holy Spirit to do it. <clears throat> so this, he says we, that, that he would count you worthy of his calling. The word calling there emphasizes the purpose of why God chose us. And so God chose the believer out of the world. And we were all each as believers chosen out of the world in order to be used for his purpose. And believe it or not, that's what this life is about. It's really not about me and you. Oops, sorry. Hate to step on your toes. But this life is not about you. And I, I really think that that's one of the problems that people are having. They think that everything that happens is about them. And so notice this word for calling. It's used, look at Second Timothy, if you would, in verse 1. Second Timothy in verse 1. Second Timothy 1, 9. <clears throat> and Paul talks about um, how God called him, as you saw this morning, and, and um, Courtney was talking about it. And so, um, in verse 8, Be not thou ashamed, therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the, a power from God. And so uh, here he's talking to Timothy, and Timothy had been told to go into Ephesus and to charge those who were in Ephesus to stop teaching a different kind of Old Testament doctrine. And Timothy was being a coward. I know that from verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. And so Paul wrote to him the second epistle, and he's trying to encourage Timothy to get with it. Timothy was so affected by this that he, did, he was ashamed to even recognize Paul. Now, we know this from the context of, of, verse two, of chapter 2. And so he says, verse 8, I would actually translate this, Stop being ashamed, therefore, of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Now, you say, well, <clears throat> how could that happen? Well, people can talk down something so much that you don't even want to be associated with it. They can talk down people. And you don't even want to be associated with that person, right? Well, you know what they're saying about that guy? You're hanging out with that guy? That guy, Paul, he's in jail all the time. That's the guy you're following? And he says, stop being ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, nor of me, his prisoner. But be thou a partaker of the afflictions, notice, of the gospel according to a power from God. Now, he tells Timothy what that power is in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Be empowered by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 9. 
who has saved us and called us, notice, with a holy calling. And so God has saved us and he called us with a set up, that word holy is a set apart calling, but uh, not according to our works. It was not because of anything that we've done or actually can do. And I know that you, you might think that, oh, God called me. He must have known that I was going to be a special individual. And all of the things that I have going for me, that he, that's why he called me. He called you in spite of who you are, in spite of who I am. Now notice, not according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. Um, another place you see it, notice in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. <laughs> And so Paul is talking in, in this wonderful um, long chapter uh, or verse that is a chapter <laughs> uh, about what God did in the past. Uh, verse 9, he says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in the earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things um, uh, after, or really it's down from the counsel of his own will. And so here you see the purpose of why we were called, that we, we've obtained an inheritance, and then notice being predestinated, what predestinated is the bounds, to mark off the boundaries of our life according to the purpose who, the word worketh is energizes all things after the counsel from his will. And so here, one of the reasons why we were called, if you drop down to verse 18, notice what Paul says in order for us to, to be able to real, actualize that. He says in verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation by, and really it's by a full experiential knowledge of him. Which is interesting because you have some people who say they get a, 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 they get a certain amount of facts, information, and they say, okay, whoop, I got it, right? And they don't understand that, no, that's just an entry-level information. Then you get here, and you have gnosko knowledge, and you say, oh, there's more understanding of those facts that I had before. And then it even graduates past that to epigonosco knowledge where there is a complete understanding of what the information that I obtained over here is all about. And so the believer is constantly growing. And, and so Peter, uh, Paul is saying here that uh, there is a, um, a spirit of wisdom and revelation by means of this full experiential knowledge that you can actually see what God is doing. Do you know you can have information and still not see it? Notice what he goes on to say in verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Really, that word hope, I would say, what is the expectation of his calling? Why did God choose me? What is the point of what he's doing? And really, as believers, we should know that, that he called us 
that we might be able to actually bring glory to him as we order our lives in the world. And what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And the potential that is there for the believer and being called and what God is using us for. So there is no wasted things that go on in life. Everything has a purpose and a reason for it. And God is using the believer to accomplish what he wants in the life of the believer. And so going back into Second Thessalonians, Paul says this. Chapter um, 1 of Second Thessalonians. He says, Wherefore we pray always for you that God would count you worthy of this calling, that you would be able to meet God's estimate of why he called you, and to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, or really I would say from his goodness. And so the word good pleasure is an interesting thing. It's, it's a, a word that talks about that which is well-pleasing to God. And all of these things that God has provided as to what is well-pleasing to him that comes out from his goodness. Now, unless uh, the, the word there is a combination there of you, which is uh, good, and then dukeo, good consideration. God does things that are a good consideration out from his goodness in which he's using you and I to be a part of what he's doing. Just think about it. It's a privilege that God called you and he decided to use you in what he's doing to bring him good pleasure. Look at, uh, if you would, uh, Philippians. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. This is an interesting verse here. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. And so, God has not only called you, but he equips the believer to be able to do the things that he wants you to do in order that he might get the glory for it. And so notice in uh, Philippians chapter 2, Wherefore, verse 12, beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so this idea of work out your own salvation. And so you have a lot of people who say, ah, see, you better work it out in order to get saved. Well, there's other places in scripture that talk about salvation that's talking about salvation after you've been saved. And I would translate this your present tense salvation. That you have a role in what's happening in your present tense salvation. Now we've understood it this way. I have been saved. I am being saved, and I will be saved. Right? And so he's talking here about present tense salvation, and that the believer has a role in uh, accomplishing things that God wants to do through the believer, having been called. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so this word for fear and trembling, it's, uh, you have the word for phobos, which is the, uh, now I believe here, fear, and as you see it in the New Testament, it's a fear of displeasing God. I don't think it's a fear of dread that he's going to strike you dead. But I do think that you want to get it right. Have you ever uh, 
worked on a job or actually been in, in a relationship with someone where you're, there was a fear that you wanted to get it right? I hope that that was true, that people <laughs> actually have that. It really leads to a good work ethic if you have it on the job. You want to get it right. You don't want to just throw anything haphazard out there. And that's what it's being talked about here. And then you have the trembling that, that accompanies that. Now notice why he says this in verse 13. For it is God with, which worketh in you. That word worketh is, um, he is energizing in you. He is the one that, uh, excuse me, I'm, the word worketh, um, I'm sorry, yeah, that's right. He's the one energizing in you. He is providing the energy or the power for operation for you to do the things that he is leading you to do. And so he is energizing or working or energizing in you both to will. Now notice how this actually comes down to Pike. To will is really is the word for fellow. To desire. He's the one energizing in you to desire and to operate or really to do to operate and what why are we doing this why is he providing this on behalf of his good pleasure you see that the father has things that he wants that brings him good pleasure he is energizing in you and me to actually desire to do it just think about this he uses the word fellow so we are to presume that if he didn't provide the desire for me to do it, I probably wouldn't do it. Not only to desire to do it, but also to do it. And what is this leading to? His glory. His glory. And there's a lot of things that uh, I, you talk to believers and they have a desire to do something, but eh. Their will kind of trumps God's will in it. <laughs> Maybe God's put a desire in their mind to do something, and they just keep pushing it. Oh, that can't be that. Can't be that. Right? They just push it out of their mind. I don't want to do that. Right? And they just keep pushing it back, pushing it back, pushing it back. No, oh, that can't be it. I remember uh, right before I retired, a couple of years before I retired, the, um, the it, it struck me, you need to stop working. You need to just give it up. And I'm thinking, that's from the devil. <laughs> that was what I was thinking. That was the first thought that came to my mind. That can't be of God, right? <laughs> but the thought never went away. In fact, it just kept getting stronger. And, you know, I discerned it to be from God. That this is what God wanted. And as I look at it in retrospect, it was obvious that that was true. And so God will uh, cause you to have a desire to do and to actually carry it out. You see. <clears throat> and what is the purpose for? I'm just a vessel in the process. The object of what he's trying to accomplish is his glory. And notice, he says that this good pleasure comes down from his goodness. Where goodness there is agathos, that which is beneficial or inherently, um, an inherent desire to provide 
for the well-being of others. And so you see this good pleasure comes down from his goodness. Now, another place that you see it before we leave good pleasure, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Second Corinthians chapter 5, it's used there as well. Um, and I think it's translated here in verse 9. Uh, yeah. I think it's translated in verse... No, that's not, that's not the one, but... It's a, um, it's a similar verse or a similar word uh, in Second Corinthians 5, verse um, 6. Notice the attitude of Paul concerning um, doing those things that are um, well-pleasing to God. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We're confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with him, but present with the Lord. And just think about it. I mean, do you think about this on, the, on a daily basis? I mean, a lot of people, they're so caught up in the world, they, wouldn't, they don't want to leave here. Um, I sometimes wonder about the word rapture. You know that the word rapture means to be snatched away? I think God's going to have to snatch a lot of believers out of here because they don't want to leave. I just always find it interesting that that word hapazo is a snatching. I think some believers are very comfortable in the world. And God's going to have to unpry their hands off of the world. (laughs) So notice in verse 9. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be. It's a different uh, word uh, for well-pleasing, but it has the idea that it's uh, doing that which is beneficial toward the Father we might be accepted of him. And now notice why he says this with regard to that particular statement, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is necessary that all of us are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Have you ever been in a class before and you didn't think that there were going to be a test and the instructor was just talking, 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 and then all of a sudden he says, this is going to be on a test, and you were like, What? <laughs> Tell me that before time. What? I I didn't take notes. I just think that in a similar way for a lot of believers, a lot of believers are just living life like this is not going to account to anything. But it's going to account. The works of the believer are going to be judged at the behemoth judgment. And I'm afraid for me, friends, and as I've told you before, you might want to stand back. Some of those works might get you singed if you're you're standing behind mine. And so notice going back, he says, Paul desired that uh, God would fulfill the work of faith with power. And so really, I would say work from faith. Do you know that work actually comes from faith? You don't work... um, uh, without faith, faith produces work. And let me just show you uh, one place where you see this. Look at First Thessalonians, if you would, and verse, uh, I think it's verse 3 of chapter 1. Now, it has been said, um, a lot of the instructors at our seminary said it, and I, having actually gone through this book, would say it too, if you really want to teach someone or show someone a good book to read when they first become a believer, show them these two books, First and Second Thessalonians. Please do not show them the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is one of the most complicated books you could ever show a new believer. 
show them these two books. These two books show what real believers look like. And how do you know that? Well, look at what they were doing. This is what real believers look like when they're filled by the Spirit. Notice in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. You could just see Paul had a, he had a bias toward these believers. After dealing with churches where there were such problems as the church we're studying on Wednesday. I mean, these believers were just, are, were neat people to spend time, to, time with. Notice in verse 3, he says, remembering without ceasing your work. See that word of, and I would say from faith. And your labor, and where does labor come from? Love. And your, the patience from hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came unto you not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And notice just to go on to show you the characteristic of these people. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Notice with joy. Fruit of the Spirit. Six, joy. Two fruits of the Spirit in verse three, faith and love. These people were filled by the Spirit. And that's why you see how they responded in the way that they did. And so he says the work and the word work is uh, seen as coming from faith. Now notice in James chapter 2, you see it in verse 21 and 22. And a lot of people say, well, James is teaching that you have to work uh, that, to get faith. That's not what James is really teaching. He's saying that um, if you have faith, it will be evident to people. Not to God, but to people. People can see your faith in what you do. And that's what he's talking about here. James 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Now, what is he saying here? Abraham was saved in Genesis 15. And you have to go into the, the 20th chapter of, of uh, Genesis to see that Abraham was saved. But that was people seeing it. God already saw that he was saved, Right. Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But you would not believe that Abraham was saved based upon the things that he did. He offered his wife, right? What man offers his wife to some pagan king to save his own neck? Right? Troy wouldn't do that. <laughs> and so you have these, this happen. <laughs> and a Abraham did not appear to men as saved until he offered up his son, Isaac. That was the first time that you could see he did something that made it look like he was a believer. And that's why he's saying, men can see your faith by what you do. And so he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how his faith wrought with his works? And by works was his faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. 
And so normally speaking, work comes from, and we see it in the New Testament, faith. Abraham offered up Isaac because he actually had faith. If he had told a pagan to do that, well, during that time they probably would have, <laughs> because that's what they do. Um, and so the word work is ergon, it is the performance of any deed. And so you see these uh, works, some works are prompted by faith, and I gave you um, some other places you can go and look that up. The word faith is the word pistos, and it's a belief prompted by the fruit of the Spirit in conformity with God's plan for the believer established in eternity past. And so God is the one that provides the faith for you and I to be able to do anything. And so the work comes from us trusting God that God is leading us to do something and the Holy Spirit allows you to have the ability to do it. You see that? And so there's a lot of things that you probably have made up and you just thought God wants me to do that and you tried to do it and you couldn't do it. Right? Remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You do not have the ability to do one thing. But God provides the faith for the believer to do his will. Now notice, Paul desired that the name of Jesus might be glorified in these saints. Going back to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him. Now this is ironic because he's looking at both sides of it. That the believer can be glorified in their position in Christ. Or God can be glorified in the believer's position in Christ. And also the, the, uh, the son's position in the believer. Now notice, this, um, let's go back before we get to that. That in this manner, that the name of Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will say each one of these titles really matter. Um, I was doing a, because of Second Corinthians, I kind of went through and tried to look at uh, how many times Jesus is used alone in the epistles. You hardly see it. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus our Lord. But you hardly see just Jesus talked about singularly in the epistles. And this is significant. Because when you talk about Jesus, his name is talking about the one who was born. And you're looking at his humanity. Right. And that he died and he was buried. In the epistles, the focus is upon the resurrected and glorified Christ. That it's not upon what happened during his earthly ministry, but it's upon his resurrected state. Now, why is this important? <clears throat> because that's what we depend upon. That we've been raised together with Christ. That we're seated together with him at his right hand. And apart from that, if we didn't have that as a fact, we would be hopeless. You see. And so, uh, so here he says that the name, or the word name there, is the character. And so we don't understand this today because we don't, this doesn't, when we think about a name today, we think about what name someone has. We don't think about it relative to what it meant. So back in the day, people were given names because it characterized something about them. Methuselah was given the name Methuselah because his name meant when this one dies, it will happen, right? 
So there was a reason for his name. Who knows what the reason is for names that are given today? I mean, you just you don't even know why people come up with these names. <laughs> it sounds neat. You know, it, maybe it's grandma's name or grandpa's name or whatever. <laughs> but here, it also was used and has been used with um, character, a reputation, something about the person. It used to be in the American culture that if someone had a good name, it meant that they had a good reputation. They could be counted upon. There was something about their character that was evident that you could trust them. And so this ideal here about the name is really the character of the Lord Jesus Christ um, is used, uh, this word for uh, character, um, let me back up. The, the phrase the Lord Jesus Christ is used uh, 56 times in the New Testament and uh, the character of the Lord Jesus can be glorified in the saint and so let's just look at a couple of places where we see that look at Colossians if you would um, chapter 3 and verse 17 <laughs> Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17 <clears throat> And so notice when he says name, he's not talking about, um, somebody asked someone once, he says, if you were getting ready to die, what would you say if you were getting ready to die? And the person says, I would just say Jesus. And the person told him, Jesus? Well, there's a lot of people in Mexico named Jesus. (laughs) What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. And so here the, the emphasis is on more than that it's the name of the person it's the character that's really in view now notice in verse 17 or, or start with verse 16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with grace in your hearts to the Lord and whatsoever you do in word or deed Do all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, even the Father, and I would say through him. And so the ideal of what you do can actually be attached to the name of the Lord Jesus, the one Lord who is our master, who died, and when you attached Christ to it, and was resurrected. And so, as I conduct my life, it's supposed to be in the character. And how do you do it in the character? Well, we've talked about that. That the life of the Son can be seen out in me. That the fruits of the Spirit can be evident in how I conduct my life. That there's long-suffering that there's kindness, there's goodness. These things can be seen out in how I conduct my life in every activity. <clears throat> Notice in First Peter, uh, you can actually be reproached for the fact of you manifesting this life. And there you go. Everybody says, well, then there, what reason do I have to manifest it? <laughs> Well, because God is glorified in us doing so. Notice in the 14th verse. Uh, 
In verse 12, he, Peter writes to these believers who are suffering as a result of the um, persecution in Rome. And he says, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice in so much as you are partakers of, the, of Christ's sufferings, so that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So here he says that you rejoice. You're supposed to um, actually have joy at the fact that you're suffering for the cause of Christ. Verse 14. If you be, or really, since you be reproached, uh, the word reproach is to suffer indignities. That people just, they they, um, treat you indignantly because of this name. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Now, what happens here? There are situations where when you are acting out and you allow the Holy Spirit to produce the life of the Son in you, people are not going to like it. How many times have you been on a job where you've just actually conducted yourself the way that you are supposed to conduct yourself and people don't just say, oh, what a wonderful individual. They, they have a disdain for you and they don't even know why. They just don't like you because you don't fit in with uh, their behavior. And so this idea of character and so it could be manifested in how the believer is able to conduct himself in life uh, notice, just to show you one more uh, illustration here in First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. And it's when you're on the job that the believer is to manifest. And notice this was even under slavery. You know, back in the day, the Roman Empire, 80% of the Roman Empire was, uh, were slaves. 80%. And, and if you were going to get freedom, you could purchase your freedom. You could buy it. But the majority of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And so notice Paul addresses this to the believers about how they should relate to these uh, masters that belong to them. In verse 1 he says, Let as many servants that are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. And why? That the name of God and his doctrine... Be not blasphemed. And so what happens? You know, blaspheme is that people are committing God to something that he, it is not true that he has said. So as we are out there in the world, or particularly in this situation, these believers were in this situation with these unbelieving masters, that they could say things about God that wasn't true because of the character of the slave. And you can see that today. I mean, we hand it to sometimes the people on the silver platter, right? Christians and our behavior and the way that we conduct ourselves in the world, many times it's not good. And, you know, they may not say it in front of you, but they're probably going back to their friends or somebody saying, and they call themselves Christians. See, this is why I don't go to church. <laughs> it's just stuff like this, right? And so the character of the believer. Yes, if I allow the Holy Spirit to produce that life in me, chances are that I might suffer as a result of it. But what you don't want is for people to say things about you that are true. 
People are going to say things about you. But one of the things that it says in scripture is that I'm to be blameless. Doesn't mean that people are not going to say anything, but that it's not true. And so you see this idea of the character of the son that uh, going back to uh, Second Thessalonians, that he might be glorified, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you. That word for glorified, <clears throat> again, the possibility that an opinion about the character of the one who is master, who died and was risen, could be expressed. That people would see that and how the uh, Thessalonians were able to conduct their lives, the potential that Paul had for these Thessalonians, that that would um, happen. And notice that the name would be glorified in you. This word in you focuses upon the life of the son, that he is in each believer uh, and is the basis of the opinion that might be expressed. That Christ is in each believer. Let me look at Colossians 1 verse 27 as an example. Colossians 1 and verse 27. Now this was a mystery that uh, Christ would be indwelling every believer. It wasn't possible in the Old Testament. And so it wasn't made possible until after um, the day of Pentecost. And so notice in verse 25, Wherefore I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which had been hid, notice, from ages and from generations, but now is made known or made manifest to his saints. So none of the Old Testament saints understood this. None of the spirit beings knew that God was going to do this. And what is this mystery that he reveals? Verse 27. To whom God would make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Christ is indwelling in every single believer. He is our expectation that we can reach God's opinion of who he says we are in Christ. It's the indwelling son that his life can be seen out in every single believer and so that life could be manifested. And notice, and you in him. Now, in him focuses on the believer being uh, in Christ. And notice, as a result of being in Christ, notice in 1 John 2, 6, the believer can abide in that position in Christ. 1 John 2 and verse 6. <clears throat> Let's start with verse 1. Of, uh, 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What's interesting is this uh, if is a um, third class condition means that it, it's removed from re- the realm of poss- uh, it's not a it, Let me say this. It's not a given that you're going to sin. John didn't write that it's a given. I'm going to sin. But it's actually removed uh, down the line that there's a possibility that you, you might do that. And if you do, you can ask. Uh, we have an advocate before the Father. Now notice in verse 2, he says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And he that says, I know him, and keep not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 
Now, commandments, I guess I must say right here, hopefully the believers here know it, but he's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the commandments of love. Verse 5, But whosoever keeps his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know ye that we are in him. He that says he abides in him already is at ease or remains in him. I think here it's more at ease because you're not losing your position but you're, you're okay. You're settled in him, you see. You're settled in him. Ought to walk, ought, ought himself also to walk, even as that one walked, even as he walked. And so you have this position that when I'm abiding, it's going to affect what happens to me in the here and now. And notice that relationship. You have this reciprocal relationship that I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. And this relationship, as they are working together, helps the believer to be able to express an opinion in this body or through this body about the Son. And so notice what Paul says to the Thessalonians, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you and you in him. There's a potential that while we're in this body that the believer, you and I, can bring forth glory to the Father in how we conduct our lives. Indeed, all kinds of situations, school, work, home. Um, many times, I, I did, when I was delivering a package over in Port St. John, I did see a church that said, as you were driving out of the parking lot, it says, now you've entered the mission field. That's <coughs> how they, they kind of said it. But really, I think, really, do you know it's everywhere? In my home life, whatever it is that I'm involved in, the opportunity to allow the son's life to be seen out and how I conduct myself makes a huge difference. And that's a huge reason for why we are here. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to be here as believers, an opportunity to be able to glorify you and how I conduct myself and how believers conduct themselves while we're in these bodies. We're thankful for the privilege and the potential of what you can do as we allow the Holy Spirit to do the work through us. And we're thankful, Father, that you um, actually create the desire to do and you actually give us the power to be able to do that which is according to your good pleasure. And we're thankful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.